If you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. Our text this morning is chapter 17, verses 8 through 24. The story of Elijah and the widow. Hear now the very word of God. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. 1 Kings chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel, that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, Why have you, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come again into him. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make your word clear to us this morning, that your word would take deep root in our heart, that we would be changed by it, conformed into the image of your Son. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered what it would be like 
to be a hero of the faith? You know, Moses, David, Paul. You know, sometimes I wonder if that's not unlike a habit that I had as a young child. I used to wonder what it would be like to be Spider-Man or Batman or Superman. But you know, no matter how hard I cracked my wrist, webs never came out. And no matter how feverishly I asked, Dad never got me a Batmobile. So I just resigned myself for the fact that I would never be a superhero. I'd have to live an ordinary life, a second-rate life. I think sometimes when we look at the scriptures, we're tempted in that same direction. We look at the incidents in lives of men like David or Daniel or Moses or Elijah, and we say, I wonder what it would be like to have that kind of faith. And we may have difficulties, but we're never thrown into a lion's den. We never get put in the cleft of a rock. We meet some tall, angry gentlemen, but no one is big and fearsome as Goliath. And we think, well, I guess we'll just be second-class citizens too. We don't have that kind of faith, but maybe enough to get us by. Our text this morning points you to someone else that you should be emulating. A poor, sad, hopeless, Gentile widow. To have the faith that she has. A faith that doesn't come in a flash. A faith that doesn't come with a long story of an entire book of the Bible. But it is a faith that is powerful and life-changing because it is a faith that comes from the Lord God. And so what I would like us to see this morning are two things. First, I'd like us to see the call to faith. The call to faith that comes from our Lord. And then secondly, I'd like us to see the challenge to faith that comes from our Lord. As he calls us to faith and then challenges us in our faith. Let's look first then at the call that the Lord gives to us. It's a call to faith. The first thing that we see is that our faith is empowered by God. And that's a bit of a broader category than maybe you might be thinking about. It's not just that God gives our faith oomph or that extra notch. It's really that God makes a living, vital faith in us. And the first place we see that is in the prophet himself, beginning at verse 8. Notice how our story begins. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. Now, you see, Elijah had been obedient to God. He had done exactly what God had said. If you look back a bit in your Bibles, chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, God says, I want you to go to exactly to this place, and there's a reason why. I've prepared a brook there to give you water. I'm going to send birds, ravens, to feed you. I've got it all set up, Elijah. That's where you will go. That is the place of safety. Now, imagine Elijah's surprise. When the brook dries up, wait a minute, God, um, I did what you said. I went off to this place and you said I should go here and you'd provide for me and it's been great. The ravens have been bringing good food and the meat twice a day is fabulous and the brook is clear, but 
Now, why has the brook dried up? Why does it seem like, Lord, you sent me to a place that's affected by the punishment that you're putting on Israel? You remember that drought? That's why the brook dries up. And we can be tempted to read this text and to say, well, you know, maybe God's at a loss here. He didn't plan the drought would be so severe. So he's got to come up with plan B. There's one very large problem with that. The brook doesn't control God. God controls the brook. God knows exactly what he's doing. He is moving Elijah for a reason. And he is basically saying to Elijah, you need to go to this new place because I said so. Just as you trusted me to go to the brook, now trust me to go to this new place. You see, this could be difficult for us if we think about it. We expect that what the Christian life is about is, if we keep our side of the bargain, we obey God, he keeps his side of the bargain, and we get to live the victorious life of ease. As long as we obey, God will make sure our marriages are perfect, our kids are smiling and clean, there's always money in the 401k, and there would never be a trouble in church, right? But that's not what we see here, is it? We see God coming to Elijah and asking him to obey again in faith. You see, God is in complete control of the situation. There's a very vivid example of this that makes it very clear that this is not about obedience. You remember in John chapter 4, when Jesus goes from Judea to Galilee? There's a very interesting verse. It says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He must go through Samaria. It was of necessity that he go through Samaria. And you might scratch your head and say, well, wait a minute. Jews did this all the time, and they never went through Samaria. There were plenty of other roads. It was maybe a small detour, maybe a large detour, but you didn't have to go through Samaria. Why? Well, you know the rest of the story. He had to go through Samaria because there was one woman at a well that needed to hear words of life. This is why Elijah must leave. He must obey the word of God because God's word has work to do in Zarephath. This is faith empowered in Elijah as God pushes him on to more and more faith, to trust him more and more. But we also see faith empowered in this pagan widow. That's not exactly a nice description to call this poor old lady who's scratching out a living a pagan, but that's what she is. She lives in the land, she lives in Baaltown. She lives in Jezebelburg of Baaltown, in the middle of Phoenicia. This is a country that is marked by Baal worship. And there's a little bit of an irony here. She doesn't have any food, and she lives in the land of the god of fertility. And you might say to yourself, as an aside, why do the Israelites want to follow this god? He can't take care of his own people, let alone us. Well, that's because he's not real. But she, at this point, I believe, is not a believer. There's a little word here that tips us off to that. Martin Luther was fond of saying that the Bible is full of pronouns. And it's important to look at them to see that we apply the text to ourselves. When Elijah asks her to go get him some food, she says, As the Lord 
your God lives. She doesn't say as the Lord my God, or the Lord our God, or even just the Lord God. She says as your God lives. I don't have anything else. Yet, she knows about the Lord, though. Do you see that? She uses God's name, His covenant name, Jehovah, Yahweh. She doesn't just say, well, the God of Israel. She says, the Lord. She knows who God is. She's a woman who is incredibly poor. She's gathering up sticks in order to make a small fire to cook. She doesn't have charcoal. She doesn't have someone to chop wood for her. She is on the lowest rung of society. People pass her by. She has no husband, and she has no way to provide for her family. But God is about to enter into her world. And it's interesting how he does it. He enters her world by way of a demanding prophet. Do you see that? Elijah doesn't walk in and say, Dear widow, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you about the four spiritual laws. He walks in and he says, Excuse me, could I have some water? Now imagine this. You're about to make your last supper, literally... You're gathering up sticks. Some stranger wanders in. His accent tells that he's from the other place over there, Israel. And he wants you to go get him water. What a lazy bum. He's a a man. He can go do what he needs to do. All right, I'll go get you water. It'll get me off my back. She takes a few steps. Oh, by the way, um, I'd like an order of food too, please. What? Who is this guy? I don't even have enough food to feed myself and my son, and he wants food too? Where did he come from? I don't remember inviting him. Do you see how God is entering her life? Does God enter your life sometimes that way? Does he knock on your door through a bad medical test? Through a blip at work? Through conflict with friends, relatives, church members? It's hard when God does that, doesn't it? Isn't it? We expect life to be smooth when God's involved. He smooths out all the rough edges. He gives us our best life now. Not to this poor widow. She's about to die, and food and water are being demanded of her. It's not that dissimilar to God's demands on us. She's completely hopeless. She's ready to die All she wants to do is make a last meal and make it be the end. You see, God has her right where he wants her to bring about faith in her. She doesn't need to be told she's at the end of a rope. She doesn't need to be told she has no hope outside of the Lord God. She knows she has no hope. She's got a couple of sticks, one last meal, and good night. God knows her need. And he comes to her. It's hard to be that hopeless, isn't it? You know, what do we do? How do we fix this situation? Well, I don't know. And that weighs us down. At least if there's something we can do, we can sort of hope in ourselves. But you see, this poor woman, she can't even hope in hope because she has given up. 
She's seen reality. But you see, faith isn't just empowered by God. Faith trusts in God. We look here at verse 13. Elijah says to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you said. But first bring me a cake. You see, faith, trust, is not a blind leap. Some would have you believe that that's what Christian faith is. It's putting your hand over your eyes and stepping and hoping there's something there. That's not faith. That's foolishness. Faith knows that there is something there. Because faith has been told by God. You see, faith trusts in God. It doesn't just hope blindly. You see, this widow is not alone now. Elijah is there with her. When she was alone, that was when she had no hope. Now hope breaks in because Elijah is there, because God is there. Because the Lord is there, he has come by his word. And that famous phrase that brings so much comfort to saints through the ages. Do not fear. Fear not. Sixty-eight times in the Bible, those exact words are used. Do you get the picture that we're a fearful people? And this goes not just for widows. God says this to Moses. He says it to Joshua over and over again. He says it to David. In the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says it to Peter. He says it to Paul. He says it to you today. He says, do not fear. But you see, sometimes that word comes, and it's all so hard. He says, do not fear, but first make me a little cake. Now think about that. Elijah doesn't give an easy question. He doesn't say, you know, if you wouldn't mind, make some for yourself, make some for your son, and whatever's left over, please make some for me. No, he says, make mine first. You know me, over here, the healthy guy, the traveler? That's hard. But you see, it comes with an assurance. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. You see, the basis for the assurance, the basis for not fearing, is the word of God. You see, her faith is able to be exercised because God is there for her to trust in. Thus says the Lord. And what she does, literally, is she stakes everything she has. Her life, her son's life, on the bare promise of God. That is faith. It's not hoping and praying and having faith that God will send you a new SUV. No, it's when you don't know how you're going to eat tomorrow. And you say... I'm going to trust God. That's faith and trust. She stakes everything on God's promise. And God tells her, please do the inconceivable. Why? Because your jar and your jug won't be empty. Think about that. What kind of a promise is that? He doesn't say, you'll overflow. He doesn't say, go in your cupboard and look, you'll see, there's ten weeks worth of food there. No, he says, because it won't be empty. Go tomorrow, there'll be something in it. Go next Tuesday, there'll be something in it. Go Friday, there'll be something in it. Isn't
Isn't that how God asks us to trust him? How do you take your marriages? I hope it's day by day by day. How do you seek to raise up your children in the Lord? I hope it's day by day by day. We have good days where we trust him more. We have bad days where we trust him less. But our hope and prayer is that our faith and trust would be in him and that it would grow. That as circumstances go up and down, it's our faith in the Lord that carries us through. You see, this is the Lord God. This is the trust and the promise that he calls you to. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what he calls you to. He doesn't call you to the spectacular. He says, trust me today with your soul. I've sent my son to die upon a cross that you might live. Tomorrow, trust me tomorrow. Next week, trust me next week. Put your faith in me, says the Lord. That's how God calls us. And the great blessing that we see here is that faith then receives from God. So faith is empowered by God, and then it trusts God, and then it receives God. Look at verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. You see, fulfillment comes in the face of obedience. Trusting. This is an example of the obedience of faith. Now notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't bargain with God. Well, okay, God, I will trust you as long as I have food. God, if I trust you for three days, will you give me food for three months? How about if I trust you more tomorrow than today, the food will be better? You see, she doesn't bargain with God. The obedience of faith is merely acting out in the knowledge that what God says is real, even if our eyes tell us otherwise. That if God says, death is not the end, no matter how many funerals you have gone to, that is the truth. Death is is not the end. Because God has said it. If God says... I have many mansions prepared for you. It is true because he has said it. And faith receives that. And look at what she does. She doesn't bargain with God. She simply takes what God has said and God says to her this. He says, you need to give me everything you have. Because I will give you everything. You need. Think about that. She could very easily have said, well, I can't give a third or a part of my food. It's all I have left. I can't can't possibly give that up. And God says, you think that's all that you have. But you need to give me everything. Give me your two mites. Give me your life. Give me your family. Give me your everything. And I will give you all that you need. You see, God does that today. If you use your home for the Lord, God will give you all that you need. That doesn't mean it's going to be a bigger house. It may mean it's a shack or an apartment. But he'll give you what you need. If you give God your family, he will give you what you need. He's calling upon you because in him are all the riches 
In the Lord Jesus Christ is every promise, yea and amen. And so, God calls you here then not to hold on to what you have, but rather to open your hands that you might receive what he's so desirous of giving to you. This is not that dissimilar to another story of another Phoenician woman. You may know her as the Syro-Phoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, where she comes up to our Lord Jesus and asks him, Lord, please help me. And he says, I've come to the house of Israel. And she says, but Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that go off the table where the children eat. Let me have a crumb. And the sharp contrast there is earlier in that chapter with Pharisees and Sadducees that are, we know, we know all the law. Who do you think you are, young rabbi? We know exactly why we are in God's good favor. But they didn't know anything. This is large contrast between the people of Israel, the king of Israel who's a Baal worshiper, and this poor woman who trusts God. This is the call to faith. But there's also a challenge of faith. There's a challenge that comes in verse 17. A challenge to believe the Lord's word. You see, so many commentators want to slice and dice up this chapter. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're very uncomfortable with chapter 17, verse 17 onward. We like the story where the widow is about to die, Elijah comes, there's food, happy ending, close the curtains, right? This is how life is supposed to be. God provides, and they all lived happily ever after, and ate the best pancakes on the face of the earth. Right? But what happens? Her son gets ill. Well, there's enough food in the cupboard, but her son is ill. Well, what, what's going on here? And then her son dies. Now, where's God? Didn't he just save her? What is going on here? And we say, well, she's a new convert, too. Why is God putting all of this burden on her? Isn't there some elder walking around here who's worshipped at the temple for 30 or 40 years, who's got it all together, who knows his catechism, who knows his Bible verses? Surely he can handle this. God says, no. I'm going to show the power of faith that I give in this poor woman. And her son is ill, and he dies. And so in the context of a daily slow miracle that she is watching every single day as the food gets there, she is faced with a test. After seeing that God is faithful, God gives her this test. And it's not an easy task to believe the Lord's word. Her affliction is horrible. This is her only son. She is a widow. It's completely unexpected. Earlier, she was resigned to death in verse 12. She said, I'm going to go home, bake myself a final meal. My son and I were going to sit in a corner and die. Now, she's completely distraught. Do you notice that? It's almost like it's a different woman. She was resigned to death before. Now she says, man of God, what are you doing to me? My son's dead. She cries out. She thinks that somehow this is something she's being punished for. She says, you being here, that means God's got a spotlight on my house and he's looking at my sin, my past sin. He knows I worship Baal. He knows that I never loved him. And now, look what you've done. You've brought attention on all of the bad things I've done and God's punishing me. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, 
We feel like that too, don't we? It's one of the reasons why very often people don't like visits from pastors. They don't like people to challenge them on growth and grace because they're afraid they're going to be zapped, de-Christianized, or something's going to happen to their family. Do you sometimes look at life that way? Is the Christian life a way to avoid being zapped by God? You see, that's not what we're called to. God gives her this challenge very soon. Because he wants her to believe in his word. But it's not just a challenge to the widow. It's also a challenge to our hero, Elijah. You see what he does? He overlooks her hasty words. He says, I understand she's upset. Give me the son. And he goes up to his upper room and he cries out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God. Have you brought calamity upon even the widow? You see what he does here? The challenge to his faith. He could easily say, Oh, Lord God, please calm this poor widow's spirits. She's obviously young in the faith, doesn't understand the sovereignty of God. He could say, Lord, I don't know why you're making my task so difficult here. Now it's going to be all over town that I'm here and her son is dead. Now, what does he do? He does what a man of God does. He enters into her experience. He takes her pain, he takes her place, and he pleads her case before God. Do you notice that? He takes her anguish and makes it his own. Because he wants to believe in the Lord God. And he wants to plead in prayer for her. He knows there's nothing that he can do. He doesn't have a magic trick up his sleeve. He doesn't have special powder. He doesn't have good ointment that he could put on it. He is placed in the place of a humble servant. His faith is being tested. He must believe the word of God because there's nothing Elijah can do. Great Elijah, the man of prayer who has shut up the heavens for three years. And all he can do I say all in italics, humorously, is pray. And he pleads with God. And he makes a great request. You see, he wants to exercise his faith. He knows that faith believes in the Lord and pleads with God. He says, God, raise this son from the dead. That's a pretty tall order. His prayer isn't, if it be your will, Lord, comfort her. He says, raise this boy from the dead. And he enters into this sort of prophetic drama play where he stretches himself on the body of the boy three times. Not that there's any magical properties in that, but he is seeking to plead his case before the Lord. But you see, also, faith doesn't just believe the Lord's word. It doesn't just plead in prayer, but it also places all hope in the Lord. The challenge of faith is to hope in the Lord. Because you see, this prayer is answered. The first thing we need to realize is, is that God would still be God if that boy would have remained dead and been placed in the ground. God would still be God and he would be good. 
After all, God had already saved his life once. He was planning on dying much earlier. But God gives them a special reason to hope because he wants their focus to be on him, not on the, the food and the oil. He wants our focus to be on him, and that's what's important. You know, there was an interesting thing I saw last night. Some of you may have seen it. There was a baseball game between the Angels and the Dodgers, and the Angels threw a no-hitter. Some of you know baseball means that the other team didn't get any hits. Good story, right? One problem, Angels lost 1-0. to zero. What? They didn't even get a hit. An error, a second error, and a sacrifice fly. You see, if even as baseball fans, we were focused upon the, the little piece, no hit, oh, that must be good. That must be one of the best games the Angels have ever played. We have a big picture. No, they lost. You see, that's what God wants. He wants us to step back and see the big picture. It's not about the food. It's not about the sticks. It's about God and us trusting Him. And God is getting the attention of both the widow and Elijah to hope in Him. And this passage is also for you as well because this is a sign of the resurrection. It's not that dissimilar to this table. It's not the resurrection, but it's a sign of it. It's something that gives us hope that we look back and see. We see that there's no border that God can't cross. You remember our story about Baal last week, how I told you he was the the god of fertility, and during the winter he died. He came under the power of the god of death, Mot. And his bride came and they fought together and they got help and they, Baal came back and was alive. Do you know what God says here? Mott can't beat me either. Baal can't beat me. Mott can't beat me. Both false idols. You think death has power over God? No. Exhibit A. God is saying, everywhere I go, there is power and life. There is no border that can stop me. And the interesting thing is, do you notice the last sentence here that she says? It's a, it's a vignette on her hope. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. We might also translate this reliable. True, real, reliable. She says, now I know that the word of God is trustworthy because God has given it to me and he has performed it. And so the rest of her days, she knows no matter what trials come, when she dies, when her son dies, which he eventually will, she knows that the word of God is still true, that the promises are still true, that they're not dependent on circumstances. What a story. One last thing in conclusion as we think about this. Do you notice the end of chapter 16? Chapter 16 is, the subtitle is, Meanwhile, in Israel, it ends with a man saying, prophecy about rebuilding Jericho, whatever. Complete disdain for the word of God. In Israel. Chapter 17 ends with a complete hope and trust in the word of God 
by a Gentile widow. Which are you today? Do you trust in the Lord? Or do you conveniently forget his word when it gets in the way? God calls you merely to trust in him. And he will provide. It's what he's been doing for thousands of years. That's the business God is in. The business of being trusted. Providing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this story from the days of Elijah. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would write it upon our hearts. That we would know how glorious you are. How trustworthy you are. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace, now and forever. Amen. Amen.